John Arminio. I heard that you like the films about all the things and everything that what the people's will. Oh, Scott, I know you heard it. I feel that you have glee that you've come to Baltimore. Oh, from NYC, put water in my tea. Scott, I do enjoy these films. <laughs> <laughs> um, John, happy holidays. Happy holidays, Scott. Uh, and, for, and, and for all people that get upset about happy holidays, like, stop being a child. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> like, just, just stop being a child. Um, I'm, I'm pretty excited about today's episode, man. Yeah, me too. I had fun uh, revisiting both of those, and for different reasons. Yeah, I think, again, uh, while these movies aren't necessarily joyous, I had probably the most fun doing research for this podcast so far. Mm-hmm. The, the sh- this, this show is purposefully dense and upsetting, uh, sometimes uh, we're purposefully dense and so we've we've done a lot of complicated films and occasionally have done more camp you know like they live or sorry to bother you which uh, you know Boots Riley just recently posted that uh, the analytics showed that it was streamed like 400,000 times on Netflix before May because that's when it was taken off streaming platforms Oh wow! Um, and how the film has just really had a lasting impact. That's great. And the importance of theatrical releases because that film really benefited from a theatrical push. And then I commented on his Instagram post. I was like, "Well, it's also the probably the best union film since Matawan," and he liked it. But. Last week we were talking about disaster pieces, and I will define a disaster piece as something that a movie, in this in this context, a film that is large in scope, large in idea, um, yeah, really pushing for something courageous uh, there's a word that I'm that's on the tip of my tongue that I'm having trouble finding but that's okay something that's daring and curious and mm-hmm. goes for something and and misses the mark by most rubrics of what makes a I guess a, a good movie but good is subjective Ambitious. Ambitious is the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are, and I am obsessed with disaster pieces. I think some examples that I've given in, in the previous movie are pretty much every Wachowski sister movie since Speed Racer, uh, Zardas. Um, yeah. Um, Babylon from last year is a big oh, one. Oh, yeah. I, I, I like that movie a lot. But I, if if you hate it, I also understand. <laughs> I'd say some of the Resident Evil films, I will say, absolutely. 
Southland Tales. Mm-hmm. And and again, these are movies that I actually most of these movies I've just mentioned I like a lot. And I'm still not sure whether Under the Silver Lake is a disaster piece or not. Uh, and I think it's important to distinguish these from like bad tentpole films. So like the Transformers movies are just messy disasters. Whereas right. these are all these all have like an artistic perspective and usually an auteur or group of artists behind them with like like you said a really ambitious goal. Ang Ang Lee's The Hulk mm-hmm. is definitely a disaster piece. Then then there's stuff that that toes the line. The Lego movie is somewhere in there because I, I actually just think it's a good movie, but it's really ambitious and it's and the reason why it's good is past the goals of what the film is trying to do. Uh, another example I think would be Babe Two Pig in the City, which is unironically one of my favorite movies of all time, but it has the the buildings of what of of a disaster piece and yeah so disaster pieces are complex and they happen on many different levels and there is a genre where disaster pieces really feel at home and that's musicals music film musicals and we were talking about you know, for some reason, I'm forgetting who directed it, but I'm sure you have the information. Uh, 2012's, Tom pardon? Tom Hopper. Tom Hopper's 2012 Les Mis, Les Miserables, which is a film adaptation of the musical, one of the most popular musicals of all time. I'm sorry, Tom Ri- Hooper. Tom Hooper. Tom Hooper, excuse yeah. me. Rivaling really just a couple musicals by Andrew Lloyd Webber who we will discuss in this episode as well and probably Hamilton but we're never discussing Hamilton on this show no thanks so so tell me about Les Mis uh, so uh, Les Mis is adapted from the epic Victor Hugo novel about life in the first half of the 19th century in France where a lot of the problems of the French Revolution are still around because uh, the, the political history of France is really complicated, where they go from revolution to dictatorship, back to revolution, back to dictatorship quite often during this time period. And um, it focuses on the character Jean Valjean, played by Hugh Jackman, who was imprisoned for stealing a loaf of bread and after attempting to escape was imprisoned for an additional 15 years by the French penal system, and he is doggedly pursued by the um, constabulary official uh, Javert, played by Russell Crowe, and along the way he encounters Anne Hathaway, the destitute um, factory worker who becomes a sex worker, and her daughter um, Cosette, who Jean Valjean eventually adopts and they through the decades all these characters try to make their way through the trials and tribulations of France and its various political mechanizations and um, the movie 
is filmed not like uh, almost any other Hollywood musical. There's a lot of close-ups, a lot of mobile camera, a lot of on-set recording of these songs, and that adds to some of the verisimilitude of some of the scenes, but also any time a character who's maybe not that good a singer, it doesn't benefit the film at all. So, um, and it's also incredibly bloated, and there's uh, too many characters and way too many plot lines, but I think that's also maybe a fault of the musical itself and not necessarily the film adaptation. So I, um, what do you think, Scott? Well, yeah, so this epic that starts in 1815, culminating in the 1832 June Rebellion, pardon me, is a very loaded hefty epic that yeah fills fills all of the needs of of an epic um oh i would also say kings of kings of new york is also a disaster piece it's just a movie that i don't like very much so limit but also you know culturally significant Mm -hmm. in in retelling a time so yeah you have this story which is essentially an opera because pretty pretty much everything is sung talking about the filming style of the movie patty lupon patty lupon broadway legend actually said that she never saw the movie because she thought the close-ups did theater a disservice however i will say that translation is important meta meta narratives are what make uh, something really special but I, I don't want a tangent because there's there's a really great example of this that I'd like to talk about but however Jean Valjean or 24601 is someone who is a man who is in jail for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his family and he is paroled and these are draconian laws he was given five years for stealing a loaf of bread and then 10 years for con- continuing to try to escape. And he does this Herculean feat of lifting something very heavy to save someone's life. And basically, he's given a sentence, pretty much a, a life sentence in a way, because he must return for parole once a month for the rest of his life. And he must tell everybody that he's a prisoner and whether it's on purpose or not, this is a commentary on recidivism and prisons and laws. And Javert, who is just so beholden to law, we find out in the middle of the story that he was born in jail. And for this, he hates crime and is the letter of the law. And I just think in the context of our podcast of religion and politics, I just think this film really shines a very interesting light on right and wrong, Mm -hmm. salvation, freedom, forgiveness, good, the concept of good, and why that the concept of good is so murky. And again, there are moments of brilliance i think in the film the the cinematography sometimes 
is is really transcendent and sometimes is nauseating the music is sometimes transcendent and and sometimes particularly when when russell crowe who i just think was done dirty by singing in the key that he is yeah when when he sings especially when he's given such a meaty role i think the i think of all the casting choices his was the most misguided yeah because he has a very like a climactic solo that's supposed to be whoever plays him is gonna like belt out you know from the depths of his soul his his inner struggles and russell crowe just can't hit those notes like yeah the the song is written for somebody with a powerful voice and a lot of range and russell crowe just does not have that and yeah, the director should have known better. <laughs> it's... Yeah, there are people. I just think they could have done. They could have done better in yep. in that instance. Anne Hathaway is not an incredible singer. I would have. I think. You know, again, when you're in the shoes of someone like Patti Lupone, I think they could have gone for something, a little, more special. They, they went for actors, not necessarily actors who could sing, aside from Hugh Jackman, who I think did a stellar performance. Yeah. But he is a song and dance man. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so, so you have Jean Valjean. He's, he's basically paroled and is like, is just decides he's going to live a life of crime and has this just sort of divine intervention. He tries to steal all this stuff from a church and he gets caught and the the priest, the catheter or whomever, is like, no, this was a gift, but also take these candles and become an honest man. And through this, he has this manifest destiny. He, he chooses to become a righteous and good man. And he's the epitome, in my opinion, of a good man. He's constantly given choices that could put his life in danger. And he could choose the easy way out. But con- but always, once he's decided that he's been saved, chooses the right thing. Yeah, I think um, yeah, Hugh, Hugh Jackman is, is such a movie star. Because you can really read in his face how conflicted he is about these choices. And even though um, Jean Valjean always makes the right one, you you can see the conflict where he's drifting to think about how easy it would be to make the wrong choice. And I think that's why he makes such a great Wolverine. Because that's who Wolverine is. He's constantly tempted to go the easy berserker rage violent route and and unlike some of the baddies in the x-men he always or almost always you know sides with the side of of good and and so um hugh jackman is just such an an expert at conveying that on screen and i think that's extraordinarily rare for somebody who's such so good on stage to be able to also portray such minute inner workings in in a close-up in a film and i i think he's just you know one of one of the great movie stars of of his generation yes and he's he also is fantastic in in another disaster piece australia 
Yeah. Again, it's, it's just not a, a disaster piece I particularly like. Boz Lerman mm. has made several disaster pieces. He has. But, yeah, there's just this beautifully, um, particularly Christian story of of redemption and the redemption of the soul and how Javert can't feels that that if you've committed a crime you cannot be redeemed and it becomes the crux of his problems in in the end of this story and when i saw this play on broadway when i was a kid javert javert is the is the breakout star of, of the story so it was very interesting for him to be given this role that i feel didn't quite work I don't remember. Was was the film a success? I think it was. Um, not. It was critically not liked. Um, and it it wasn't the the financial disaster that cast was. Um, another Tom Hooper joint. Uh, but it it, it didn't blow up the box office either. Hi, this is John Romania from a day later. Uh, I was wrong about the commercial and critical success of Les Misérables. It earned well over $400 million worldwide, and that's off of a $61 million budget, and it holds a 63% on uh, Metacritic, which means uh, generally fable reviews. But it doesn't seem to hold a cultural imprint the way other $400 million <laughs> grossing movies at the time have. So, curious, but um, my apologies for my uh, easily Googleable uh, error. I mean, I could not get through Cats. It's one of one of the worst things I've ever seen. Yeah, uh, just incredibly misguided. That's just a disaster. Like, not good. Yeah, I mean, I feel like live-action musicals are... It's really hard to toe the line. It's really hard to do correctly... And I don't know how they were ever going to do Cats. Yeah, they should just not have done it. It's 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 a pure creature of the stage. Like, I, you know, I'm never going to, I don't think, enjoy really an an adapt, a version of Les Mis just because I don't I don't like any of the songs. Um, like the only memorable ones are, to me, Master of the House and I Dreamed a Dream. And that those are only memorable to me because they've penetrated popular culture, and, and so like I can never engage with any version of the story that I don't find boring because if if I don't like the songs in a musical, you know, it's it's like finding the action scenes in an action movie boring. Like the it's kind of what it's what it's there for. So you didn't enjoy the music of Les Mis? No. And I'm not, somebody who, who, I'm not somebody who doesn't like musicals, because there are musicals that I really love. Um, like, you know, people say that they immediately take them out of, of the movie, and I hear that criticism a lot. But for me, that's like saying, well, anytime I see Godzilla in a Godzilla movie, it takes me out because there wouldn't be a giant lizard in real life who breathes fire. Like, well, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's a movie, you know. When, when I hear the Jaws cue in the movie Jaws... 
Like, the shark isn't making that sound. It's <laughs> it's an orchestra that was recording that sound th- six months after that scene was shot. Like, right. <laughs> it's, it's just kind of the, the environment we're going into. Right, and this is also something that happens in any sort of avant-garde or interesting cinema. Mm-hmm. So if you like any of the artsy directors we like the idea of going outside of stories i don't know it's not that it's not that big of a deal for me in fact i like the escapism we were talking about yargos lanthimos and those films feel like they're inside a magical dimension and it's mm-hmm. fine for me in fact i feel it to be transcendent was there anything you liked about les miserables um, I like several of the performances. Um, I really like the production design. Um, I think, um, I d- uh, well, for me personally, I liked the the revolutionary song, like the the black and the red. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting, um, especially because there is a subgenre of black metal called RABM, which is red and anarchist black metal. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so that's politically left, um, you know, black metal. So, like, Panopticon, um, Spectral Lore, and and bands like that where they're, they're part of their their identity as a band is their leftist political stance. And so, you know, to uh, black metal is identified by blackness and, you know, by their leftist politis, politics red. And then for a song in this movie... Who, to express its leftist politics in a song about like the colors red and black, I sort of connected to immediately. Um, but that, that... Red defends in the vine. <laughs> but I admit that's a very uh, niche way into to this movie. Yeah, I just so I just think about. You know, um, I I really love Magic the Gathering, mm-hmm. and and the concept of the color pie and Dungeons and Dragons and the concept of alignment. And what I feel that Les Mis does really well is not necessarily on purpose. Is that you have two characters that so so in Magic the Gathering there is the color pie for which the cards are based off of and. There are also combinations of colors. So you have white, which is like law. Red is like passion and freedom. Green is nature. Black is intrinsic selfishness. Blue is innovation. And But, but that can mean so many things. And then there's combinations of colors. And there's lots of great articles of why the color pie is more interesting than the Myers-Briggs, for example. And at their core, both Javert and Jean Valjean are mono-white. They're characters that are guided by morality and law, yet they couldn't be more different. You could say that, that Javert, if we're multicolored, would be blue and white, and Jean Valjean would probably be red and white. But, and... They both 
at times go from lawful good to chaotic good. So Javert is supposedly a good person. Good is fights for that of good, but is judgmental and self-righteous and pious and and ultimately so stubborn that he can't get past his ideas. And Jean Valjean's goodness puts him at risk throughout the story. Yeah, Javert has no capacity for self-reflection. Like, he, he's so dogged in his determination to persecute even the most rudimentary or superficial of laws that he's willing to commit acts of evil to achieve this, you know, this end goal, whereas Jean Valjean is constantly re-examining himself. So, so, so even when he is out of prison in the beginning of the film and is stealing again, he's thinking to himself about how he has become a monster because of the what has been done to him. Um, that, you know, if he had enough food to eat 15, 20 years ago, he would never have thought about stealing. But now he's rattled, he's sort of been saddled with um, what society has done to him and what he's been turned into, and he feels guilty about that. And I think it's that self-reflection that allows him to then transform when this sort of opportunity of grace is granted to him by the the priest and the church that you know, let you know forgives him for his his theft of their property. Especially since forgiveness is true divine, divine mm-hmm. to 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 forgive is is divine, and again, at the core of of my interpretation of Christianity is the ability for redemption, mm-hmm. and. Is it just to live in a world where the working class is starving to death and having to resort to stealing to eat bread? The cornerstone of of French culture, amongst other things, is bread. Yeah. So when, and you can look at revolutions in France that basically when people can't afford bread, this is when revolutions happen. So... Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in letter from Birmingham Jail and, and other writings talked about that, you know, law is does not necessarily conflate with morality. That, you know, Nazis in Germany were following the law. Rosa Parks was breaking the law. Mar- Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was breaking the law. Um, John Brown was breaking the law, but I actually have to dispute the, the Nazis following the law. (laughs) Um, I mean, you know, they, they burned down the Reichstag to make it seem like the communists burned down the Reichstag. Um, I'm not saying they didn't also can commit war crimes. I'm saying that they thought they were good. And I'm also, I'm also saying that in context of what Martin Luther King said. Sure. In his writings. So, what this, what this story eventually talks about is morality and Mm -hmm. good 
is is complex and laws that would punish people versus crimes that would save people it just is confusing yeah and i think um to me it's interesting that victor hugo both victor hugo and charles dickens were you know the most famous and wealthy writers of their respective countries and they were relative contemporaries of each other and they were writing about very similar things in very similar scopes about like the conflict between morality and law and the role of money in society and the plight of the poor in in a world where there are there is just such wealth disparity and and yeah i i know that you know dickens came up from like absolute poverty in, in the same way that um Charlie Chaplin did, and so, so, so these are things that at, in the 19th century, you know, the all of Western Europe was really uh, grappling with. Especially in, in England, there was a real proliferation of a 19th century version of the prosperity gospel mm-hmm. um, that that was really rife with uh, Protestantism at the time, and so we're we're really seeing sort of a return to that over the past like 40 years in America where you know we're like if you're <laughs> rich and powerful it's because God has divinely redeemed it so but you know in in this film the most explicitly religious imagery we see is a priest giving away the wealth of a cathedral on the chance that it's going to redeem this this criminal. And I do find that uh, very powerful. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a film that I think, despite itself, is, is an enjoyable experience and allows me to really meditate on what it means to be human and what it means to redeem yourself and if and if people are redeemable and and in this context i feel someone that steals a loaf of bread or um take steals some candlesticks from the from the church is definitely redeemable but i think when you talk about bigger crimes and bigger issues and the idea of the prison industrial complex and how that's turned into a farm for capital and not about redemption and not about penance you you look at it from from a larger angle like what if Jean Valjean did a bigger thing what if he did what if he just did something bad right mm-hmm. yeah what, what yeah what if he committed murder to to get the the bread for his his sister you know when talking about when you know, some of the the responses to police brutality in 2020, you know, you would talk, you'd always, people would sometimes look at like the perfect example, like when, when someone like Elijah McClain, who was just seemed like an, an eccentric kid who, ha, you know, his, his mother says that he was not on the spectrum just was unique and 
was going home and had sensory issues and, and had a hoodie on and was essentially restrained and killed from uh, source cause of death was overuse of ketamine but there are a lot of reasons why this young this young man died and it was completely avoidable and in fact one of the officers is back on back working um and but everyone was like oh well you know poor Elijah McLean and yes poor Elijah McLean what happened to him was disgusting but then there you know people talk about the deserving you know, criminal and the undeserving person, you know, uh, uh, George Floyd was actually a really bad person and he was on fentanyl or whatever. He didn't deserve to be murdered by Derek Chauvin. Yeah. Eric Gardner, Eric Gardner selling cigarettes is, is not, should not be punishable by death. Yeah. You know, I don't believe criminals and I'm not calling any of these people criminals I don't think people that do crime should be murdered by the police I I think there should be a form of restorative justice I think the hardest examples are the most heinous of acts but I do think there I have to somehow believe in redemption yeah. And, and I believe Jean Valjean is redeemed over and over. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Well, no, I, I was just saying that, you know, we're... Yeah, th- th- there's this eagerness in in our society right now to, to cast anyone that the police come in contact with a, as a villain. But, you know, <laughs> I, I think... Most people alive have done something as bad or worse than selling cigarettes on the street. You know, and like, uh, I guess everyone who's ever worked on the board for Philip Morris has sold millions of cigarettes to people and killed them. But they're fine because they're champions of capitalism. I don't know. Um, yeah, so if we can just get it through our heads that you know, may- maybe it shouldn't be up to the police on 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 who to execute because they're being uncooperative during an arrest. Like it's it's ridiculous. And and of course, you know, we're in this country we're obsessed with funding the police with more and more money and material and giving them more and more powers of of arrest and violence and allowing them carte blanche in the same way that um, Javert has in the film. Oh, there's so many good, there's so many good talking points for this movie, which, mm-hmm. which I think makes for good talk. Yeah. 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 You know, Before... one thing that, um, this is, this is just kind of a, a point of interest for me personally, is that, you know, this is a this is a a French novel adapted by French people originally into a, a French musical and then adapted in England and then and then it went to Broadway. But it's to me, it's interesting that so many of the characters speak in Cockney accents. Yes, and and for 
like the last 80 years or no back to Gil- Gilbert and Sullivan like the language of poverty in stage musicals is the cockney accent and even though the cockney accent doesn't really exist anymore um in london it's been replaced by a couple of other accents that that it's still being used to sort of communicate poverty even in a French composed story set in France. And I, I, don't know, I just find that interesting. And so you have two Australian actors as, yeah. as the, the, the leads in this movie. And they're doing American accents, kind of. Yeah, it's just, you know, very similitude, you know. You just have to accept. I think it's. I haven't seen Napoleon, which mm-hmm. for I hear is a disaster piece. Have you seen Napoleon? Uh, yes. Um, I, I just think it has the um, the fault that a lot of biopics have is that it tries to cover an immense amount of material in two and a half hours. So, you know, we get, like, the entire Russia campaign takes, like, ten minutes. The time between Marie Antoinette's execution and Napoleon's crown as emperor is, like, ten minutes. So it just... Like, we just don't have any time to be emotionally invested in anything that, that's going on. Um, and it, it really has no concern with the politics of, of France, really. Like, we don't get any reason why Napoleon would be able to <laughs> crown himself emperor after he just participated in a revolution to overthrow a king. Like, there's, it gives no reason why the French public would allow that to happen, why they would support him, why they would support him returning from exile. Uh, so it just, I think it either needed to be like eight hours or concentrate on a specific period of time. But again, like, does Walking Phoenix even attempt a French accent? No, and I think that's good. I, I Again, I think it's good too. You just have to pretend. You just have to accept verisimilitude. You just have yeah. to, ex- you just have to accept the, the world that you're living in. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Um, and I, I sort of want to, I want to continue doing epics and, you know, I just have lots of, lots of high hopes for, for this podcast. I, I could see pairing Napoleon and Che for mm-hmm. funsies. I just don't know if I want to do seven hours of research. <laughs> for sure. I mean, when the, when the four hour version of Napoleon comes out, we could tackle that by itself. I'd rather watch. <laughs> I'd rather rewatch Russian War and Peace. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Oh, it's it's it's. Well, the one I'm talking about is is really excellent. Hmm. And recently had a restoration that's just divine. Hmm. I've heard nothing but good things. The nineteen, you know, nineteen fifty six. Mm-hmm. I think that I think there's a newer one, but I haven't seen it. But I mean, War and Peace is again a wonderful. I mean, that would make more sense because it's about like the N- Napoleonic Wars, and. Maybe one of these days they'll they'll really tap into 
to St. Louis whose book, the book about the Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James is one of the books mm. that really sort of radicalized me. Ridley Scott's first film, The Duelists, is a much more interesting examination of the values of the Napoleonic Wars than, than Napoleon is. Um, you know, because it's about these two guys who are on a collision course because of these sort of codes of honor that had been imposed upon them by, you know, kings and and the entitled nobility, and they 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 turn each other's lives into a living hell because of it. And it and it's I, it's a really interesting examination yeah. of toxic masculinity, I think, too. And I meant the 1966 War and Peace, not 1956. I was glancing over. 1966 War and Peace is, is, you know, made in Soviet yeah. Russia, and it's like five hours long, and it's it's so fucking good. Uh, I would I would totally watch that again, and sure. I'm, but I, I I would need time. Yeah, I would, I would need time. The BBC made one in 2016, but I haven't seen it. Um, right. But. Um, yeah, I like Napoleonic Wars, and obviously, I I really want to talk about the Paris Commune at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, I mean, yeah, there's so much, there's so much stuff to talk about, in so little time, and unfortunately, we will not live forever. But some people are are risen again. So like, uh, Jesus Christ, <laughs> right? Super, super so, stuff. what is the other film that we talk about today? Um, we're looking at the 1973 musical version of Jesus Christ Superstar, directed by Norman Jewison. Um, this was originally done in 1970 as an LP because Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice could not get funding for a stage musical. Um, but the record eventually became a hit, and that became a stage musical, and then it became a film. And um, it takes a look at the last few weeks of Jesus' life through the eyes of Judas Iscariot. Uh, it gives a, a very human portrayal of the characters in the Gospels, that, and that includes Jesus, which uh, which expectedly gave rise to some controversy by uptight ninnies. And, um, you know, personally, uh, this movie had, was really important for my spiritual development, I think, because um, I saw... Tell me about it. I saw the stage version in Boston, which was part of a 20th anniversary tour that turned into a five-year tour for, for this uh, company of performers. Uh, um, it was part of a school trip, I think, if I remember correctly. And it was, so that was the first um, musical that I ever saw. And it was, it was really important in me being able to like empathize with Jesus and being able to sort of recognize the human pain that he was going through, not just the, the physical pain of, of being crucified, but also, you know, I think especially affecting was the, the leper song about, you know, there's just so much agony in the world and everyone clamoring to Jesus to, to cure them. I think that I found that very affecting. And, you know, the idea of 
Judas really loving Jesus, but being disappointed by the fact that he was becoming a superstar, and he was afraid that Jesus was starting to believe his own hype, and that that, that celebrity would poison their mission. And I hadn't thought of Jesus' betrayal in that way before. Uh, um, and so I think, and, and so, um, like, from then on, it just gave me a different perspective on, on how to view the story of the Gospels, on the, the story of Jesus, on Jesus as a person. Um, and, you know, almost immediately after I saw the live version, I rented the, the movie on VHS and watched that. And I, I do have to give 10-year-old me credit for not being put off by the very, you know, 1970s vibe of the film, um, which certainly dates it now, but I think that makes it a very honest version of the story because it definitely has this vibe of, like, a bunch of 20-somethings going to Israel and doing this musical. And, you know, just shooting in ruins and shooting in the middle of the desert and capturing the, the beauty of the landscape of, of the desert sunset and singing these songs. And I find Norman Jewison a fascinating filmmaker because, you know, other films in his filmography are The Fiddle on the Roof, In the Heat of the Night, uh, Rollerball, uh, A Soldier Story. So he's really immersed in other cultures and different perspectives. He's done science fiction and, and musicals and romantic comedies, and he's just willing to open himself up as, as a director to all these different ideas and perspectives. And, and you know, this. so this is a, a movie and a musical that has, you know, stayed with me since I was 10 years old. Yeah, it's interesting. So there's there's two popular rock operas about Jesus Christ, there's Jesus Christ Superstar and Godspell. Mm-hmm. Growing up, I was more connected to Godspell. I did a production of it in high school, but I had Jesus Christ Superstar, the soundtrack, in my house on vinyl. So I really, I would listen to it a lot. That and Hair, the the movie Hair, mm-hmm. uh, which just has lovely music by the by Galt McDermott. But what strikes me on my rewatch of Jesus Christ Superstar is that, yeah, it's like, it's got all, it hits all the beats. It's got good acting. The music is really good. The, the film, the cinematography, the photography is, is very good, but it doesn't do it for me as a movie. It feels like it, it almost feels like an anthology Hmm. where even though it's not meant to be in vignettes, but it has like, a vignette feel. Yeah, it's it's um, it's definitely split into the specific song, so it is almost like a collection of of music videos. Um, and yeah, sorry. Yeah, but I, I, I guess I, I find that appealing because it doesn't. You don't see. A lot of the major events in the Gospels, like, you know, there's there's no John the Baptist, there's no Lazarus, there's no water into wine, there's no let he who has no sin cast the first stone. These are all events that are referenced by, like, Herod or Judas, but we don't see them. And so I think, for, for me, 
because it's told specifically through the eyes of, of Judas most of the time that I think it, it holds together as a narrative. Interesting. Okay. So, yeah, uh, again, so you have Les Mis, which is one of the longest-running musicals of all time, next to Cats, which is, again, Andrew Lloyd Webber. So there is a connective tissue. Andrew Lloyd Webber did Jesus Christ Superstar. Tom Hopper, Hooper, which one is it? Hooper. Hooper directed Les Mis, also directed Cats. You know... Andrew Lloyd Webber also made a board game published by Games Workshop about capitalism that that predated that was around the time that that Games Workshop mostly best known for Warhammer was was making Talisman which is one of their most popular board games which I was introduced by my friend's heavy metal cousin who was really into it because he was like heavy metal, but he was also Orthodox Jewish, which was an interesting dichotomy. Mm-hmm. And there were certain games that you could play on Shabbos and certain games that you couldn't play on Shabbos. And Talisman was deemed by his rabbi to be okay to play. So so we would play it and would talk about heavy metal because you couldn't listen to heavy metal because it was, it was a Sabbath. But... Andrew Lloyd Webber and Sondheim are probably the most famous modern, you know, Broadway people. The difference is Sondheim is is probably or possibly the goat, and Andrew Lloyd Webber is just I don't know doesn't work for me most of the time. Yeah, he doesn't work for me most of the time either. But you know, this this one does obviously. Yeah. There's parts of Evita that are beautiful to me. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with Phantom of the Opera. My my recent in, my recent revisits did not work for me. But yeah, tell me tell me a little bit more about Jesus Christ Superstar, the music, the connection, how how it connects to popcorn eschaton. Well, um, I, I'm also, you know, interested in sort of the story of the cast in this movie because you know it um ted neely who plays jesus uh, him and um carl anderson who, who played judas you know would perform this on stage hundreds of times together um they really connected um and you know had a very intimate friendship um on this film and throughout their lives and you know um, Anderson died very early, uh, um, at the age of 58, I think. And, you know, D- Ted Neely, like, he was barely cast in this. Like, he, um, Norman Jewison was supposed to see him in a production of Tommy, but, you know, the one performance that he was sick for was the one Norman Jewison saw. So, Norman Jewison was pissed about that and so they had to sort of like meet for lunch and through that lunch meeting Tennelli got the role of, of Jesus in this movie and and just to connect to Popcorn Eschaton um, Tennelli and Carl Anderson discussed The Last Temptation of Christ the novel all the time on the set 
uh, as had a sort of connected to, to these two characters. Um, and I'm also incredibly affected by the, the portrayal of Mary um, and just the, she, she just has a couple of like really affecting songs just to, to get across like the human connections that Jesus is making in the world and how you know he's spreading all the all this love in the world through to both Mary and Judas but you know he's destined to die um and you know I'm also especially now um affected by the presence of all the 20th century military equipment that the the movie utilizes to sort of symbolize the authority of of the law and and the state, you know, especially as the Israeli army continues to commit war crime after war crime in Gaza, and so I think that 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 social commentary about the continued militarization of the Holy Land that has been going on since there have been Jewish people, um, you know, continues to today. I love that. I love that. And man, I could just rock to the music. Sometimes me and Saskia sing um, "Everything's All Right." Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah I, we, I I hum Jesus that G. <laughs> I I hum that to myself a lot. Like that that is an earworm that's been in my head for you know a couple decades. I've been humming Les Mis all week. Um, but as as we close up, are there any sort of um, ideas or notions that you'd like to, to talk about? Well, um, just re- real quick, I do just want to cite, I, I just love the, the camera work in Jesus Christ Superstar. Like, there's one pan across Judas's face during, like, his closing number as he's belting out, you know, the, the title song that I think is, like, kind of magnificent. And just to connect it to the theme of Les Mis, I love that after Judas hangs himself, which is very graphic, we see him again sort of ascend in a white suit, you know, and perform this incredible song. And so we see... Judas get redemption and you know we don't see the resurrection of Jesus because Judas wasn't around for that but we do see a sort of pseudo resurrection of uh, of Judas you know who's been vilified for the last 2000 years in a way that you know it seems pretty unfair to, to, to this guy uh, and so I, I really appreciate that about the, the, just the portrayal of him, um, the way it allows that character to just, just be the star of the show, and and I just love the way it, it, it humanizes these, these characters. Um, I had the opportunity to show it to a friend of mine who had never seen the film before, and he grew up in an environment where um, people would have called this sacrilegious, and so he he was pretty affected by it, and so I was very grateful to have shared that experience uh, with him. I love that. Well, 
as we meditate on this holiday season and think of the haves and the have-nots. Um, thank you for going on this journey with me. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to revisit one of my favorite movies and to get me to uh, also revisit Les Mis, which was a, certainly a fun experience and I enjoyed it discussing it with you very much. And if you see someone stealing a loaf of bread at a grocery store, no, you didn't. You did not. <laughs>